people why are people talking there we go hello everyone and we are live i did not forget to push the go live button don't worry <laughs> um so today we are going to be talking with bass for those of you that haven't seen uh bass actually came on what was it, a couple of months ago now few yeah, last year i haven't checked the calendar to see how far ago it was but it feels like ages yeah yeah, it does. Um, and we were, we were talking about Notion in that one. And today we will probably cover Notion to some extent, uh, but we're going to dive in a little bit into privacy, security, and probably general productivity, tips, tricks, hacks, general general chit chat. Um, I will say you have a YouTube channel, Tools on Tech. Do you want to talk a little yeah. bit about of, uh, the, the channel and what you do? Yeah, well, I'll, uh, I'll make it a two-parter here because for the security bit, which we're going to talk about uh, outside my YouTube channel when uh, I'm working, uh, I run, uh, I'm run. i an infra engineer. I used to do security for large companies. I think eBay, uh, the city of Amsterdam I'm currently working for, I'm moving up on the management level. Um, so I know quite a bit about uh, security in general because like, I constantly had to make sure that applications are uh, secured. And I'm also constantly failing with my WordPress site because those things are under constant attack and I'm too busy with my work and my YouTube channel. So then at some point I get like a message saying, like, your site is hacked again. I thought I fixed this and it, it gets better. I got scripts and everything for it and, and it's all automated and there's more code in there than you've probably learned by now, Danny, but it's uh I've done one hour of HTML. Well, then, then I'm <laughs> going to be on that one. Yeah, definitely. But you know, it's fun to do uh, outside that, uh, like on my Fridays that I try to keep free all the time. I work on my YouTube channel where I talk about notion tools on tech and uh, I really love doing it only it's been, uh, been less frequent lately but that's because i'm switching no worries end of uh, this month i'm done with the whole switch where i'm trying to run two companies at the same time and i hope to have more time get more frequent also you mentioned last time because i was taking like longer and longer for my videos because i wanted to make them perfect and see how far i can stretch that and then you said like you know i, I can sometimes make a video by just switching on the camera and we're like okay i need to go back to that it's like <laughs> so i'm trying to find that new balance now where i'm, I'm trying to not touch blender all the time and just take a topic and dive deep and uh, spend a bit more time talking a little bit less time in the editor, which is also much more fun. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We're, we're, we're nerds. Well, I am. I don't know whether you publicly admit that you're a nerd, but I can't deny it. Like, did I tell the one about where I went with a suit to Linux world? Cause that one's hilarious. I, I don't it's a long so. time ago, but like I do a Linux engineer and I went to one of those Linux world conferences in the Netherlands and I wore a suit. Now an engineer never never wears a suit. Like we don't wear suits. It's like I don't wear a suit when I go to an interview because they won't take me seriously. It's like that this is the level on it. But I thought it'd be funny to wear a suit to one of those conferences. And what happens is because you wear a suit, all the salespeople think that you're the manager, which <laughs> I wasn't at the time. These days I am the manager, I'm just very picky. But like they, they constantly try to sell me stuff and we're talking best friends. You get free coffee, drinks, snacks, the whole works and stuff like that. And they just don't didn't realize that I was an engineer, except for the fact that I was constantly asking questions where they go and like, let me get the technical person to answer that one for you, which that bit was hilarious. But halfway through the day, I was just chatting with a couple of nerds that were standing there. And I think we weren't even... 45, 50 seconds in or something, we were talking lettermans and I said like, oh yeah, I got my letterman in my uh, in my backpack. And they just looked back at me and said, you're just wearing a suit. Like nerds can just spot other nerds straight out. It's like, you can't hide it because they just ask a few technical questions and you just 
started rambling and then was like, yeah, yeah, let's go get a beer. And it's like, <laughs> it's like yeah, you're, you're not who I thought you were. <laughs> yeah. I can yeah. actually have a conversation with you. It's like, exactly. You're, it's you're one of normal. the best feelings. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're a normal person. <laughs> um, Gail, good to see you. Kim, good to see you. Energy Nation, good to see you. Yusuf, also good to see you. And have I streamed HTML? No, because I watched it about three o'clock this well, three o'clock this morning or last night, depending on whatever whatever way you look at it. Um, and yeah, I was just going through real basics HTML, which actually is essentially Markdown, but just different tags which is, is much easier than I thought it was going to be, to be honest. Uh, CSS is probably bad, the bad. next one. Sorry? H HTML and stuff like that is not bad. It's like, uh, what we maybe should do is like have like a live session where you try to code something and I'm just sitting back and then when you have questions, you can just ask them straight away instead of having to Google everything. <laughs> I didn't have to do that with the HTML, but I, I can see that coming when I'm going through. I'm like, why is that there? Okay, I have my Google over there. Ask oh, this question. Okay, now I can come back to here. <laughs> like, yeah, I see that. All the stupid error boxes. Like, <sighs> HTML when, is the worst. So HTML, I didn't find that difficult, but a couple of the other mm -hmm. languages were like, even just, even just Notion with the error boxes. I'm like, what? And I can just imagine what coding is like. <laughs> Coding is mostly uh, shouting at yourself and Googling answers. I mean, Stack Exchange is the default uh, web page to have open. Uh, it helps a lot once you get like into the professional side of it because then you have peers, so you have people that you can ask for questions and people that peer review your code, so you write something. And then somebody comes to me and says, like, that's a pretty neat 10-line code, but we already have a function for that. You could have done that in one word. Right, that was half my afternoon. But thank you for telling me. Now I won't have to spend this much time next time when I'm writing this stuff. So it's always it's like a live and learn. And I think that definitely with coding, uh, you should always know that there's somewhere out in the world that can do it in less code than you. Yep. And I, I've noticed that with formulas as well, with Notion formulas. Whenever I put a formula out um, that it, well, some of the older formula videos that I put out, I now know how to make shorter, but obviously I put them out like three months ago. So that was the knowledge I had at that point. And I get, I get comments now that like, you could do it like this, or you could do it like that. And I'm like, I know I could, but the video was made three months ago and I didn't know that then. <laughs> they, they've probably learned that stuff after I've made the video and then gone back to comment. I'm like, this, this um, is like the worst pain that we have as, as, a, as a YouTuber. Once we upload something, you can't change it. You can't put an addendum on it. You can't just switch out a scene or put like a little text box over it that says like, I know how to fix it. It's over there. You've got to put it in the pinned comment and no one ever reads it. They just go past the pinned comment, make their comment. And you're like, you have to scroll past my response already or read one of the yeah. responses from the same comment. Yeah. Oh, and, uh, but yeah. 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 Okay. So we, we've hit the we've hit the, the time where YouTube's actually sent out sent out the live stream. So people people are here that want to be here. Privacy, privacy with apps. This is something that I get asked a lot. And when I did the the Q and A on Notion, I got asked a lot about the security and the privacy side behind Notion. I yeah. I have read their their procedures and policies. I don't understand half of it, but I've read it. <laughs> uh, can you can you explain a little bit for like a layman because i am a layman when it comes to privacy mm -hmm. and security what it actually means when it comes to the the cloud storage local data arguments backwards and forwards that sort of thing yeah so like the first thing the, the, the two things are separate like security is to make sure that nobody gets access to your stuff and then the privacy is the bit that guarantees that whatever you put into the system 
isn't read by the company or spread to other people. So privacy, for example, spills, plays a huge role in uh, WhatsApp because there they increase the security by encrypting everything because they wanted to protect people's privacy. Because before that it wasn't encrypted and the NSA was just tapping the lines to the WhatsApp station and just reading what everybody was saying. The day that they introduced something like that was, I, I basically woke up that day, read the news and I was going like, they did what? They just enabled encrypt. Somebody at the NSA is crying today. Like. A whole boardroom is probably crying. That's 10 billion people that you suddenly can't track anymore. So, yeah, those two things are, of course, uh, uh, tied together because you need high security so that you can promise somebody high privacy. Privacy is usually a, a large part uh, yeah, red tape. It's a lot of mumbo jumbo and a lot of text that you need to read. I once read through the whole section of Google, and Google actually has privacy statements that say that um, Accessing your Gmail can only be done by five people at Google. That's They've engineered it in such a way that only five people can actually get to your mail. And then if they do it, then you get like a notification that they're going to access your mail. Of course, they have uh, limitations because as a company situated in the USA, they can actually get like uh, the government coming to them saying like, you're not allowed to tell, but we do want to have access to the files and they'll probably have to comply and they can't say it anywhere, but they, are trying to basically engineer their way around it by making it impossible. This is one something all these VPN companies do that we're advertising for. They take your traffic and they send it through and then they toss it away. Now, that means that from a privacy standpoint, it helps because people can't go back into your log files because they come to this VPN and they say, well, we don't, we don't keep those because if we kept them, we had to give them right now and that would be our business model. So no logging here. But on the other hand, the same uh, people can, uh, the same government can come to this company and say, like, I want to track all the data that Danny's throwing through his VPN. And from that point onward, when you're using the VPN, they can still track it because that's a bit of the security layers that are behind it. So there's always ways around it. And I think that in most cases, we're trying to make a balance between can we keep our privacy strong and accepting that people are always reading. I mean, I always joke about the fact that I've got home automation out China. So basically anything I do in this house gets sent to China in some way or another. <laughs> uh, but I also block it in one way because the one device that they all have to go through before they can, they, they can't access the internet, but I made sure that the one device that they have to talk to that talks to the internet, that's called Homey. And that's made by a Dutch company, by guys they can actually call because there are students and I was in their Kickstarter project and they had a barbecue, which was really nice. So <laughs> I trust that little globe in the house. That's the one that uh, I would never, from my security standpoint, get any Wi-Fi enabled device from China with the exception of a doorbell thing that I once got to try out, um, which I was very wary about and also was very much calling back to China because if somebody rang my doorbell, it took like five minutes before it was done sending all the video to China before my phone started ringing. It was horrible. Uh, I stopped using that uh, soon right. after because clear. Like if you get anything internet enabled from China, be wary. That's, that's just my, my ground rule. Okay, I, I have so many questions. <laughs> I have so many questions. Okay, the, I, guess, I guess the first question is you say they, they dump the data. Where, where does it go? What do they do with it? Is it just 
they erase all the files. I, I, I don't know. Like the dark web to me is just a mystery. So mm -hmm. has that got anything to do with security and privacy or is it just deleted? Like where, where does it go? What, what happens to it? Okay, so like we have to separate a few things. Like, uh, well, let's start with the privacy bit and what happens to your data when you're online. So mm -hmm. when you put something in Notion, it needs to be stored somewhere. This is your and their privacy policy means that nobody except you or the people you share it to gets access to it. That takes a bit of the the care of the privacy bit. But of course, there's data that gets stored, which for Notion means that it goes into a database and their system that is around it makes sure that only you can access it. And then we have something which is called encryption at rest, which means that the final step is that if you're, if that database gets stopped or backups or anything like where it's not in use, because if it's in use, you need to decrypt it else you can read your pages, but anything else it's encrypted. Meaning that Notion has a key somewhere, and if we're lucky, and that depends a bit on how they implement it, there's a key per person, and usually most companies, it's like a global key that they use to encrypt everything, which is part of automation. Um, if we're talking uh, the dumping of data, like it's engineering. So like with a VPN, they engineer it so that the data never gets stored anywhere. It's like it gets immediately sent to like, uh, what we call it uh, def null on Linux, it's a device that you can write stuff to, but it doesn't get stored anywhere. It just gets obliterated straight away. So usually if they have log files, they send it to that device and that it means that it never existed, meaning that they can't give it to somebody else. If you're talking dark web, dark web is a bit trickier because the dark web is basically a layer on top of the internet or under the internet, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, and what the dark web does is that you use something like Tor, for example, to try and hide your identity so that people can build sites that have dubious content because you still need to put it somewhere on the internet. And if you, if I put like a site up and I sell like uh, uh, stuff for medicinal purposes, let's call it like that. If I put that up on the internet, and I just put it with my local internet provider, then within the month, I'll probably get like a nice call from the Dutch government, uh, at least the police on my door saying like, hey, you're doing illegal activity. We're bringing your site down and we're bringing you in and I have a very bad time. So that's something I want to avoid. And with the dark web, what you do is that I still put it on the same spot. It's like still on, it needs to be hooked up to the internet, except my server doesn't tell it's doing that. And then it uses something like Tor, which, uh, is a layered sim. But like, I mean, if you have, if you ever you heard about Tor, do you know what it is? I, I've come across it, but it's one of those things where I recognize it when someone says it, but that's the extent of my knowledge. Okay, so the Tor logo is an onion, and that's what it does. It puts like layers around you, and what it means is that um, they put like uh, in between hops. So if I want to get something from that illegal site, or somebody wants to get something from my illegal site. Uh, but it could also be for uh, legal purposes. Tor was originally designed to, to keep people anonymous that might get tracked by uh, other evil intentions. So that, it's a it's a two-headed like it's a it's a double-edged sword. That's the yeah. word I was looking for. Anyhow, um, so what happens is that you talk to somebody at random in this network. They talk to somebody else at random in that network. That person talks to another person random in that network, and that person talks to the endpoint. Um, and then it keeps track of that path that was made, and then eventually it goes back. But I believe it, it does a few things that I'm, uh, it, I've read the uh, white paper on it too long ago, 
but it does a few tricks to make sure that basically those people don't know where they need to go. And very often it takes two different paths. So imagine that you have like a classroom with kids in it and they are not talking to each other because if they were talking to each other, this whole thing would fall flat. Um, you would give like, uh, there's Tommy on the other side of the room and you're on the, the closest side and you just like to the child to your right, you give like this and say like, this needs to get to Tommy eventually. And they just give it to a few couple of kids. And this, the fifth kid in the row doesn't know who originally gave them the paper because she didn't see me give the paper to the first kid. They just know it needs to go to Tommy. So they keep giving it until it gets to Tommy. Tommy looks at it, goes like, here's like the secret message that I didn't want anybody to tell. Nobody knows what Tommy does. He just got the message. And he gives it to somebody else and says, like, this needs to go to bus. And it goes to another five, six kids. And of course, like the third kid in the row doesn't know that it came from Tommy. Just know that it had to go to bus. So like, um, and that's how Tor works. It, it travels through the network, but it doesn't know where it came from. It just knows where it's going to go to. And they put layers around it. So this is something which security does. It layers it in. So actually, the third kid doesn't know it needs to go to bus. It just needs to know that it needs to go to some random kid that happens to be in the middle that has the way to open the message and go like, oh, it needs to go to bus, and then gives it on to something. So there's you should see like I put it in an envelope and I put another envelope and another envelope and on every envelope has a name of a kid in it and the kids don't know what it came from or where it went to and that's how you hide it now there's a whole technical way on how to solve this and I have no idea how to really easily explain it but the simplified version is giving the message through a couple of people that don't know where it came from or where it needs to go through they just know the next kid that it needs to go through kind of like that, Chinese whispers yeah, it's a similar uh, setup. So that oh, whatever it's called and wherever you're from. <laughs> yeah, and then when you talk about the dark web, that's a part of the internet that's on that one that's mostly used for the shady side of that uh, business set. And of course, like any uh, uh, any dealings that you do with a criminal uh, background, there's of course some rules, but not all rules are followed. And let's face it, these people are not trying to follow the law, so they're pretty. Creative. I mean, if you buy something through the dark web on a store and you pay with your own credit card, then don't be surprised if you're paying a lot more than you're anticipating for. And if you're lucky, you actually get some stuff. Uh, so it, you need to take a few precautions to get stuff done. It's also one of the reasons why things like Bitcoin are very popular on these uh, systems, because Bitcoin allows you to have like a trust relationship without actually knowing the person because they have a similar setup in the blockchain. I, I may have bought a few things uh, through time with Bitcoin. It's uh... <laughs> okay. Um, Andy's asked a question in chat. Uh, so Notion is vulnerable, and there is a chance that one day our data can leak. So my understanding of the dark web that you've just explained is that the dark web is separate because Notion is stored yes. on a public server, so no one can inadvertently hack through the dark web into its separate thing, and they'd have to hack to Notion. No, no, that's not how it would work. Okay. Like, if you want to hack Notion, you go outside the dark web because Notion is part of the normal web, and that way, the best way to hack it would be to go through the normal web. Actually, nine out of ten times, the best way to hack it, in case of Andy's, is to hack Andy's computer and then get access to Notion. Uh, I'm assuming in this case that uh, Andy runs uh, Windows, and uh, usually, what you do is like you take like ten thousand people using Notion. 
you find the person that's least protected. So a person like me that's either running Linux or uh, a fully closed off firewalled Windows, well, I, I'm, I'm not the usual target because it's like, that's too much effort, but that's not how this works. People want to get access to certain data. So they try to find the weakest link and then they get into there, which is the same problem I have with my WordPress site because I learned WordPress site for multiple people. And there's always a site that doesn't get updated frequently enough. And then at some point somebody gets in and they have multiple sites. So at some point somebody breaks it. That's interesting. So the hacker essentially goes into the weakest link of the chain to then get in. So I assume Notion yeah. have to protect the weakest link. Yes. And one of the ways that they do that, of course, is because they're using a web browser with uh, HTTPS uh, access. So that encrypts the track, the definition going from and uh, back and front with SSL certificates. Uh, always keep track of that little check mark on the top of your browser because that thing's very important. Because if that one doesn't match up with the one from Notion, then most browsers these days give you like a big warning. But then you can do something which is called the man in the middle attack, which means that somebody tries to sit between you and Notion and just know what you're exchanging because you can check whatever you're sending or receiving from Notion. That This is what SSL does, right? It, it has like a third trusted party that both parties say like, Notion goes to this trusted party and says, I'm Notion. And you go to the same trusted party and say, is this Notion? And it says, yes, that's Notion. And then you know that you can trust it. That's that's to keep it uh, safe in traffic. And then I said, the weakest link is the end user. You can't really change that. I mean, the safest way to access something like Notion will probably be your phone because phones were designed to be uh, safer. Like PCs are not as safe as phones because the Windows PC system wasn't designed for an internet world, the original Windows PC. And Microsoft is still backwards compatible to like Windows 95, most of the things, uh, which I think is uh, a hard job and I'm amazed that they can do it. But at the same time, that also limits it. And then most of the protection on your Windows system comes from your browser, which over time has become more and more sandboxed. So for example, I'm, using StreamYard right now, but StreamYard can't access my other tabs on my browser because they're totally separate, uh, which is something which is called cross-site scripting. And that was usually the most effective way to get to somebody's data before all these protections were set up, where they tried to get um, a site set up that you would access and then that would drop uh, some information in there that you could that they could use to start javascript and with javascript they would access one of your other browsers uh, and then the other browser they could read the data uh, these days they try to avoid that by having those cross-site scripts disabled but we still like cross-site scripting because one of the things that we do with Notion, for example, is we embed other websites and then people automatically get to the question, how can this other website access my Notion? Hence the cross site. And then you wanna have that in a secure way and you don't want your browser to do it. And I, I don't think that they, we, men, I think at some point we messed with the CSS and I messed with somebody else with CSS. They was asking questions. He was using like an extension that could access both Notion and another site and then used JavaScript to connect those two. But the, that extension had access to both websites. 
So the Notion Enhancer accesses Notion's something because that obviously has themes. It has dark themes and it changes some of the aesthetics, which I'm guessing is CSS or JavaScript or a combination of yeah. to give you the weekly view, et cetera. So how do they access Notion without getting access to everyone else's stuff? Yeah. So once you install an extension in Chrome, Edge, Firefox, whatever, it will tell you what sites it needs access to. Um, a nice example for that one is Toggle, for example, which I use for time tracking, which needs access to a lot of sites. And what they do is that in the extension, I have to specify which sites they need access to, and then Google pops up and tells me like, hey, uh, are you okay with this site accessing all these subsites? And that's what an extension does, right? If you have a Notion extension site, it will probably say something like, I need to be able to read and change all the sites that run on notion.so. Here's the part, once you start using an extension like that, you're opening yourself to risk because if somebody were able to change that extension, they automatically also get access to your full Notion because that's what the extension does. So is that what people call a backdoor? Is, is that what it yes. is? That's a backdoor. Like if you install a backdoor in like a Notion extension, somebody else installs the extension. And then after they've done that, they can open it and uh, basically read anything. So this week by uh, I saw that the Great Suspender, which was an extension I used for a long time, uh, got disabled by Microsoft Edge because they got bought up by a larger company and that one added malware to it, meaning that you get all these extra advertisers and stuff through the extension. Considering the fact that the Great Suspender uh, had access to all my browser windows, that's risky business. Luckily, the Great Suspender only has access to the loading and not the actual content, which limits it a bit. Um, Right. But you can see how something like that, like if you give like an extension, that kind of access. So I'm guessing that's yes. so what, what Gail said that, yeah, that's, that's probably what I was thinking. So that, I mean, I, d I don't know about you guys watching, but I'm learning a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So it's, so having, I'm just thinking, so when it comes to extensions or new applications, so I know there's been a question with when it comes to embedding videos and embedding websites and stuff into Notion or into insert application. Uh, I know, for example, Obsidian use iframe. I don't know, know what that is, but they use iframe to embed YouTube videos into the Obsidian markdown file yeah. somehow. Again, still new to code. Um, does does the embedding process themselves create a backdoor or is that just them changing something in the, the surface? Uh, so like embedding uh, a website with iframe is pretty secure these days. Um, I'm a bit like, like as I see Gail's questions, I want to like uh, answer that one to him and then dive into iframes, which is yeah, go for. super interesting. So a notion that no longer works on my Mac because of security settings, that could very well be it. So I like, I'm not sure about the backstory behind Notion Enhancer, but I do know that Apple is pretty fanatical on like blocking extensions and stuff like that when they think that they might have a trouble or like a problem going on there, which is good. Uh, but they should, of course, communicate why. For example, with the Great Suspender, I got like a nice message saying like Edge is blocking this because it's on that block list. One Google later, I know why. So with the um, Notion Enhancer, I would need to do a little bit of research to find out why it was blocked. And then maybe I could explain about it uh, by, by diving into that. Now, to get back to the iframes a bit, um, 
for that one for guilt like is it okay if i would like do like a quick google because i just want to know now it's like yeah yeah go for it see, see what i uh what i can get so notion enhancer yeah because I, I was exploring the the uh the github of the the github profile i'm new to that as well uh and saw there's quite a few contributors to it as well mm -hmm. uh and as soon as i saw that i was thinking okay so 12 people have access to some or all of the code, I'm not sure, uh, which is suddenly installed on my computer, which potentially gives them access to Notion. Confused how this works. I mean, I've done it anyway. I've used it, didn't like it, so I got rid of it. Um, <laughs> which tool were you talking about? Because we also have reading like on the Notion answer bit. Uh, well, are you talking about what I was... So the, What you were talking about there? Yeah, the Notion enhancers having multiple contributors assuming they all have access to the code, potentially giving them all access to adding something to the extension, which could then be like the, the backdoor yeah. in type thing, uh, because it's a public repository, if I'm getting the words right. That's correct. Let's see. Let me, I'll share my scram because uh, I got the public repository open at the moment. Let's see if nice. I can... Uh... Yeah, if you share your screen down the bottom. Uh, it's screen, not video. They've recently added a, a thingy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Yusuf, I do see your question, and Gail, I see your question beforehand as well. Uh, Andy, I also see your question. I will go through those in a second. I'm gonna. Oh, I see oh, Andy's yeah, two questions. Have you have you got the I was already afraid I would just share my whole screen, but I have this massive screen these days, so that doesn't work. But I can luckily pick one. Uh, so, uh, like, I've got the GitHub open uh, mm -hmm. right now. So this is like Notion enhances GitHub, and it's. This means that Notion is open source. Now, open source does not mean that everybody can just make changes to it. So you don't have to be worried about malware getting into this. It works the, by what we call a peer review system, meaning that if somebody makes a change and they say, I want to add code, they send it to the people that are maintaining the Notion enhancer, which I can probably see here. Like you see contributors here. Like these are the people that put code into it and who are working on it. But that doesn't mean that all the contributors are allowed to give access. Now, I've been working with GitLab lately, so I don't know exactly where it is. But if I would click through it, then somewhere it says, like, these are the maintainers. And usually there are two to four people that basically are standing at the door saying, like, this change gets in and this change doesn't. And here we see pull requests, and these are changes. So people that saying, like, hey, I would like to fix this. Let's pick a random one. And what we do here is then this one says like, hey, I just want to make a change to the code and I want to set the font size to 14. So the person that maintains the code looks at this, goes like, okay, that's not malware. That's just putting the font size in there and then can say uh, approve. And I, of course, I don't have the button because I'm not a Notion enhancer maintainer, but they have like a merge button so they can approve and merge it. And that's how this open source code is written. Now, the worst thing that can happen is somebody sneaks like a, a backdoor into that um, and then on one end, you say, like, okay, everybody can make a patch, so it's very easy to get, like, a backdoor in that. But it also means everybody can see the code, so a lot of people are checking to see if there's backdoors in it. If something is very popular, then a lot of people always are keeping, like, a keen eye on it because there's people that are more fanatic than me that would... I would imagine there'd be some people proofreading every letter, <laughs> every yeah. character. And it still happens, like, because it's... If a lot of code goes through a system... It can still happen, but remember that like Linux, uh, the kernel, which is what my uh, laptops runs on, 
that in its complete sense is open source built. And if anybody would be able to get like a security bug in there or a backdoor, they would be, yeah, uh, that would be bad for the world in general. So looking at these codes, there's like a, a check and balance system to get code in. Uh, and it's also super nice because it also means that if you're using Notion Enhancer, you can also see why they get blocked and you can dive in it. So one of the things that I was looking at and why I'm going to like their GitHub website is because if it says like it's blocked on Mac, then usually there's an issue somewhere that says like system doesn't work on Mac anymore and what can I do to fix that? Um, but I couldn't quickly find anything on. So I have to dive deeper on that one. I'm going to put that on my task list to find out because I want to <laughs> know now. Okay. okay, awesome. I mean, we've got tons of questions. So uh, let's let's go to user's question up here. Who would you recommend Linux to? What distro is the best for the beginners? Now, I know there are some Linux users in the chat uh, or watching the replay that already use Linux and have explained some things to me about what it is. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, expand a little bit on that question and as well as what Linux is in comparison to Mac and Windows because I think a lot of people know Mac and Windows and Linux is like this thing, thing on outside. The side, yeah. yeah. So when it comes to Linux, it used to be like it was more for the engineer type. But to be honest, I had my grandma running on Linux at some point, so it's not that hard anymore. Um, as to uh, who I would recommend it to, I think you need to turn the question around these days. And that's who I wouldn't recommend it to. So like, I wouldn't recommend it to people that do a lot of video editing. One of the reasons why my main system is running Windows is because it gets kind of fed up switching between uh, Linux and Windows all the time. Uh, to be fair, all the tools that I'm using, DaVinci Resolve, Blender, uh, uh, Inkscape, the GIMP, it all runs on Linux. It's all software that I could just, just as well run on, on the Linux side. The only reason I switched was because DaVinci Resolve on Linux, the non-paid version, didn't support H.264, and that's basically what comes out of all my cameras, like my phone, my Canon, the, the webcam, whatever. So that was just too painful to deal with. Uh, also, I got friends and I like gaming. Gaming is still like a hard one, but it's not as bad as it used to be. It used to be that like for gaming, you didn't use Linux. My current desktop I used for a year before switching to Windows due to my YouTube endeavors. Uh, and I was gaming 90% of the time on Linux because Steam is amazing for Linux gaming. It's like... That I can get a whole ballpark onto why they did that and how amazing that is for Linux users, but it's not because they want to support Linux, it's because they want to make sure that Apple and Microsoft don't turn on some thumb screws later. Um, <laughs> that's the best distro for beginners. Um, talking distros, and if you get Linux engineers here, you can talk for days, but my basic would be Ubuntu still, because Ubuntu is one of the first distros that really try to get to this point where anybody can do it very this quickly is, what is a distro that's a good one so <laughs> let's hop on back because this, this is this is decades ago that i had to figure out what a distro was but like a distro like linux and all the software that comes with it you can build that from scratch there's actually a project called linux from scratch where you just compile everything and you put it all together and you can build your own distro i wouldn't recommend this to anyone sane Insane, maybe, but say no, because it takes forever and you need to know a lot. If you want to get to that level, I would prefer to go to Gentoo, which I did install at some point, because uh, they take the whole compilation bit for you. You have to do like a lot of tweaking and buttons and stuff. 
what Gentoo, Ubuntu, Red Hat, and all these other things do is that they combine all these packages for you and make them work together. So basically they do all the hard work of getting all this software together and getting it working. So why recommend Ubuntu is because that was the goal Ubuntu initially had. They had two goals, uh, these two things that I really appreciate about them. One, they made the install painless. Where a decade ago, you could install Ubuntu. I could give it to anyone and they could install it. Anybody that tells me that they can't install Linux are lying. <laughs> I can give the distro to you, Danny, and you have it installed in, in 10 minutes flat. It's just next, 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 type in your name, say use the main hard drive, and it does all the work for you, and you're done. I like you that. <laughs> it's, it's very well done. Uh, the other thing that Ubuntu did, which was amazing, was that they had community guidelines. Now, this doesn't sound very special in 2021. Like, we have community guidelines everywhere. You're say 2020, then. <laughs> yeah, but if you're talking 2005, uh, I think, is that 2005? Maybe it's even before that. Like, 2005-ish. Uh, Ubuntu came to the scene and they had community guidelines, meaning that if people were new to Linux and they started with Ubuntu and they went online for help, instead of getting told what a noob they were and that they couldn't even get their compilations upset, you just, you just download the Linux kernel, you run CMake, you run a couple of compilers, make sure you set the 15-bit flags right, and, you know, that will work fine. Yeah, Ubuntu okay. actually went like, uh, yeah. And Ubuntu went like, no, it should work out of the box for somebody. And if it doesn't work out of the box for someone or like it doesn't work easily, that's a bug. And we either need to fix it if we can fix it or we help people in the kindest way possible. So, of course, it doesn't always work, people and stuff like that. But most of the time, if you came as a total noob, because the community guidelines, the community was welcoming to new newcomers. I taught Ubuntu back in the day to uh, seniors, which means you need a lot of patience. And I believe uh, part of my YouTube explanation comes from that side, because that, that once, you have, once you learn to teach it to someone who's really trying to learn something new and hasn't even learned how a mouse works yet, you can explain anyone anything. Um, and that's what, what, what Ubuntu does. It like It's welcoming and helps you out if it doesn't work. There's one thing that I stopped at some point, because I had people that came to me and I had like, yeah, it doesn't work with my network card or something like that. And with a laptop, of course, there's a problem, but they also had like desktops. And I was like, okay, you just got a free operating system. If you're going to go and buy Microsoft, you need to pay 200 bucks for it. And you're telling me that you're, the fact that your network card isn't working is for you a showstopper. And you can get a perfectly fine working network card for 10 euros at the local computer store. And that will just run out of the box. Um, so that's one of the things, of course, like I don't have any Linux problems because when I buy a system, I check if it's Linux compatible. And nine out of 10 times it is because Linux runs on nearly everything. Um, but there's a few things in my house. For example, like I'm talking to you right now and I'm using a Focusrite and I know that that one doesn't work on Linux. It is that I'm using Windows now for my YouTube videos, else I wouldn't have bought it. Now it was just like, okay, get the best tool for the for the job. I know that Stream Deck doesn't work on Linux, for example, which is also one of those things that uh, I know that I would need to tweak and get it to working on, uh, uh, on, on Linux to get that going there. And for most end users, like if you just want to browse the web, uh, and so you do 90% of your browser, which happens if you use something like Notion and WhatsApp and uh, Gmail and stuff like that, Linux is an excellent choice. If you just throw it on your laptop, it runs, you don't need to think about it, it updates everything in the background these days. And it already did that way before uh, Microsoft and Mac came to the scene. Because what distros did, they had like a package system. 
And Chrome, for example, even plays nice with that system. So that means like in Windows, lots of programs, and I really hate that it cranks my all these programs that talk to me say like, you need to update my program. I'm going like, why? Why do I need to click on these 15 buttons to upgrade everything? Because in Linux, you just go to your software manager, you say upgrade everything, and it upgrades my Chrome browser, it upgrades all the software I had. It doesn't ask me anything, and then it just keeps going. Um, one of the things that I really liked about Ubuntu, and I wish other operating systems would use that, is that Ubuntu has one core rule that says that you don't interrupt the user. And you don't know how good that feels to have an operating system that has no pop-ups ever. Because <laughs> if there's a pop-up, that's a bug. That needs to get fixed. It gets fixed. Things don't pop up. Um, and those there are small design things that want, now I'm back on Windows. I just Slack, for example. I get like a notification, and that pops up like on the corner of your screen. Yeah. And for some reason, I always need to be in that corner when that pop-up comes there. It's like I'm typing something. I'm willing that this pop-up comes up. And I'm like, all right, what do I do now? Like, how do I get rid of it? There's no cross on it. I can only click on it, but I don't want to open the program. And it just mind boggles me. And then I've gone like, why didn't I have this problem in Ubuntu? And then I realized that in Ubuntu, they also have pop-ups, but they made them so that you can't interact with them. So it pops up. If your mouse goes over the pop-up, it disappears. It just uh, fades out, and you can work behind it. All my notifications are on my phone to completely avoid any pop-ups on my screen. Like, yeah, well, I think that's the best thing. Yeah. Anything like all of like the Discord, the Slack, like anything that's going to give me a pop-up notification is on my phone, and my phone is always muted. So mm. it's I turn my phone on. Oh, there's a hundred and something pop-up notifications. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. So when it comes to Linux, Mac, Windows, comparison for security and privacy, is there much of a difference? Not as much as it used to be. It used to be that like Windows was a real pain to keep maintaining stuff, but Microsoft really stepped up at some point. I mean, I still think that having like an, a virus scanner and a firewall on your system is more of a stopgap. It's like, you know, hey, our system isn't 100% secure, so here's something to scan for it and fix it. But it's a lot better than not doing anything about it. Uh, also, of course, Microsoft is a large target, so I definitely get why they need to do it. Um, Linux, for example, by default doesn't have a firewall or a virus scanner because it's designed to be multi-user. So you yourself, if you're using it, you're very limited in what you can do with the operating system. I need to always switch to like the super user. Yeah, no pop-ups is like the dream, Gail. That's just... I miss that. I miss that a lot. That's not, that's like the one thing I'm going like, oh my god, if only I get that back. And it's not. It's, it's like the, my printer coming with the pop up saying like, hey, your ink is low. Yeah, sure. You could have just put that in the system tray and just put an icon over that. You didn't need to stop me from working for that. It's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm getting in like a rant territory. Like pop ups. <laughs> We've got enough. Yeah. So if I'm heading towards rant territory, this is the moment that I break out the whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> it's. But yeah, the, the pop-ups bit, and as I said, I, I really wish Microsoft at some point would just make that a rule. Just say like, hey, if you want to be part of our operating system, then you need to stop bothering your end users. <laughs> On the other hand, from a usability standpoint, I have worked with end users. I've worked help desk. If you don't tell them upfront, you don't put stuff in screen, a lot of people wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't maintain their system. So while on one end, I find it super annoying that Windows keeps telling me that I need to reboot. I'm already glad that it gives me an option and doesn't spontaneously reboot like it used to do. I mean, yeah, that um, was so annoying. 
Yeah. Oh my God. Like it, it did it to me earlier today, and that was partly my fault. But I completely neglected the pop up. Uh, it came up. It said because uh, I updated a comment. I think it was like Affinity Photo. I like there was an update. I did it, and it was like the system needs a reboot. When do you want to do it? And it had defaulted to in five minutes. But I, I didn't sort of like acknowledge it at the time. I was like in five minutes, yeah, sure. <laughs> Dropped it down. I was like halfway through editing the thumbnail for this this live stream, and then boom, down. I was like, what just happened? Oh, I was like, we yeah. had a power cut. What's going on? And I was like, oh yeah, the update. <laughs> <laughs> completely closed everything down, rebooted. I was like, yeah. okay. And it's funny that you mentioned it because that's one of the main. Um... Uh, from a security standpoint, both from a usability standpoint, a problem. If you give people constant pop-up boxes, they start auto-ignoring it. Mm. So our brains are wonderful things. Like what you did there, it's like you just hit like the go away button, and then the go <laughs> yeah. away button became I'll like a permanent later. problem. Remind me later. Yeah. <laughs> Late, later came in five minutes. So that's yeah. like why why you don't want all these pop-ups. You want if a pop-up comes up in your screen, it really needs to be for something which really means you need to stop what you're doing now. And if it doesn't happen that often you suddenly find that a lot more important than when it used to be. Like if on Ubuntu, I got a pop-up screen, it's like, what happened? Why is this thing in my screen? And I, I just get jogged out of it. To, to give an example, rebooting in Ubuntu, there's a power button on the corner of your screen that's used for shutdown and reboot and log out and stuff like that. And the only thing that happens when you need to do a kernel update, which is the only time that you need to reboot, is it turns red. I've had that thing red for two months because I was too busy working. Where it was going like, you know, it would be great if you would reboot me at some point. Like, yeah, sure, man, yeah. later. Yeah, okay. Um, and that's just like a nice way. Let's see the questions, because uh, yeah, I, I know what you mean. It's just, oof. yeah. Um, so this, I've had my, I have my mouse over this question for a while. Uh, so one of the best protections is to make it more work for the hacker. They want the mm -hmm. least amount of friction to get in. Yeah. This yeah. is like it reminds me of like one of the greatest ironies. So you know what the first thing is that happens to your system once you get hacked? No. It gets more secure. Because the first thing the hacker does is make sure that no other hackers can get in. That makes sense. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but it's true. Like uh you got botnet. So what they try to do is they try to hack your Windows so they can get 10,000 Windows PCs that are hacked to do like a, a DDoS attack. So they all get to the same site at the same time. Now, the only way you can do that, if you have like a lot of PCs all over the world, that would just all instantaneously at the same time do stuff. And what those people do is they try to get into your system. And the first thing they do once they're in the system is go like, okay, firewalls up, more protection, and then make sure that nobody else can get in because this is my system now. It's like you get like a mafia protection racket going on there. <laughs> Um, the only problem, of course, is, is that your system is hacked and that suddenly your CPU starts spiking because they're using it to mine Bitcoin. It's like, but that's like the other thing around. But yeah, you need to make yourself like more work. And it's not that you need to do a lot, but it's mostly um, just the basics. Like a firewall, for example, the main thing, the reason why we run a firewall is to make sure that only the ports that are actually used by programs are open. Now, these days, um, and then we get into firewall territory. Uh, like if you're at your home network, your router is actually your firewall. That's the thing that actually is attached to the internet. That's the one that gets all the flack. Poor thing. It's, That's interesting. Yeah, so your PC can't access the internet, or at least can't be accessed from the internet. So if someone was to hack the router to the home, it would be everyone's computer that's compromised, essentially, rather than one? It wouldn't, wouldn't take that long. Because, well, of course, your computer is protected, so it wouldn't be trivial. 
But because the com most computers would assume that the router isn't hacked so that they're in like a secure network, that would mean that the protection is lower on it. So most systems you try to put close as many gates as you need because nine out of 10 times you don't need any incoming connections. That's only if you're hosting something. It's like, um, I don't know if you know about Plex, but Plex is like a way that you can share media. So like I can stream media from my PC to my TV downstairs. That one needs an actual open port because if I'm at my friend's house and I want to watch a movie there that's on my Plex or I want to preview one of my tools on tech videos because I also put those on the Plex because then my friends can watch them before I put them live, then their TV with their smart functions need to be able to go over the internet, talk to my router, go like, hey, did you, uh, I, I need to talk to the Plex guy. And then the router goes like, that's this port, yes. And then you go through and you get access to my uh, desktop. And this is one of the uh, greatest and worst things that are out there. It's called UPnP, and it's called Universal Plug and Play. It's pretty old uh, by these standards. But what it means is that your PC can talk to your router and say, like, hey, I got this app running on this port. Can you make sure that the rest of the world can access that because I need it? And it's a wonderful feature because it means that we can play video games in multiplayer because somebody is the server, somebody's hosting. So what happens then is that the game talks to the router, says like, hey, can you open ports 5,000 X, whatever, somewhere between one and 65,000. And then all the other players uh, get told where they need to connect to what port, and then the router lets them through and they can access your PC and you can play your game together. So that's when you want that access. But if you have a hacker that gets access to your PC, it does exactly the same thing. It goes to the router and goes like, Hey, can you open this port? Because I really want these friendly guys on the other side of Russia to get in here and have a, sh a chat on my server. Um, they won't always do it uh, these days because the problem with the UPnP thing is if I go to my router, I can see all the ports that are open. And if I see something that that's not supposed to be there, that's a pretty smoking gun kind of problem. Like, okay, so one system is... Uh, and because I can not only see what port is open, but I can also see what system it's pointing to, the first thing that I would do is just unplug that system and then start digging in it to figure out what was running on said port. Um, so what they do these days is that they usually just don't use the UPnP and they just ping. So they talk from inside to out because one of the tricks that they do is that once you, if you want to talk, like if I want to send data to Notion, um, I don't open ports so Notion can access my system. I go to Notion and I get my information. And that's what yeah. they do as well. They talk to a central agency and say like, hey, do you get any work for me? And then the agency says like, I got work for you. You need to like DDoS this server at 10 a.m. tonight. Uh, and then they store that and then they wait and then they do it. And there's all this, this constant back and forth because you don't want to um, over text the PC because then people start noticing and they start taking action. But you do want to have like keep control over it. So it's like this whole mystifying web i mean yeah they ever play pandemic let's you know is the uh, pandemic ever plague inc i think it is yeah yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I've played that. yeah so it's a bit like that you don't want to make it immediately apparent that it's super deadly because then people start you know solving no, the problem and you don't want to do that 
So they always try to balance it a bit. And most people don't notice. I mean, I immediately notice because I'm a stiffler for PC performance. If my PC performance goes like down a tidbit, it's like, who's that? And get me the task manager. And I start checking <laughs> out whatever is using my resources. Um, you know my computer. My computer is always like 98%. <laughs> I I like I still don't get how how you keep up. Like you're like yeah, it works fine. I'm just going like. <laughs> Only takes me three hours to render a video. <laughs> and I'm really joking. It's like three and a half hours to render like a, a seven minute video. It's on my phone <laughs> when my computer's going. My God! Like when I, here I am complaining if it takes more than ten minutes. It's like <laughs> this is like uh, just. Just do it. I mean, it's one of the, it's like small little squirrel moments, a side tangent. The amount of people that make excuses in YouTube forums are like, oh, this doesn't work or that doesn't work or my tech this or my tech that. I'm sitting there like, right, okay. Um, I live streamed without a camera, my webcam. Like you must have seen like the second building a second brain live stream. You look at you like, yeah. is, is that Danny? I can't tell. It's like four pixels. <laughs> Like my computer is at 98% almost all the time. I have an external hard drive that's one terabyte. That's mm. that's literally every single piece of memory I have, like digital memory. And then there's John with like I don't know, 40 something terabytes worth of memory in his PC. Like I need another, I need another storage drive. I'm like, what? How? Where? How? Uh, where, where do you keep it? Stuff like that. Well, you know, you know, I'm just as bad because like I got way too much gear hanging around me. So like I, I can't say like I, I'm just baffled sometimes. There's other things that I was really worried about. I mean, I heard your backup solutions and I was just going. <laughs> it's like, what? He uses YouTube as how? <laughs> how can you sleep at night? It's yeah, yeah. I mean, all my videos are on my external hard drive and on YouTube. Yeah. I, well, one of the benefits, of course, is yeah, if you have it on YouTube, like uh, Gail talking about the uh, hey, make it worse for a hacker. One of the if you ever heard about ransomware where they go in and they encrypt all your stuff and then they want a credit card before they encrypt it for you. Uh, the best fix around that is having good backups, but also to make sure that those backups can't be accessed, else you'll find out that your backups are encrypted as well, which is very annoying for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah, because then you solve it on one problem and then you just put it straight back in and then you got to do it again. So this is why I have like Tonsipay, uh, which is a Dutch company that sells like storage where I sync my movies to but i also have iDrive where i just use the backup function and the backup function means that they can only add to it they can't change anything that's there which is what makes sure that even if my system would get hacked then i usually would only lose like the last day of work which would be annoying maybe if that would just have been my editing day but you know most yeah. of the time we'll be able to handle that's understandable though it's understandable yeah back <laughs> backups is one of those things that like John just always just he's at me at me on it. I mean, Notion got the same, and Nerd Notion is the same. Like they're all just, and I think Kim as well. Oh, and Gail actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I was like, I'm looking in chat, looking at names. I'm like, yeah, all of them want me to have a backup or more backups, mm -hmm. but don't need it yet. <laughs> so, Andy's question. Okay, more simple questions. I mean, simple questions, hard questions, any questions. Yeah. Uh, could someone like Bass hack my Notion? I have a Mac, by the way. I would imagine to hack your notion, they'd need to get into your system from my understanding of what you said earlier. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah so then the, um, like the simplest way to get into someone's notion would be to be able to access their notion. So then um, 
there's there's multiple points of attack so someone like me might be able to get in your notion but it, it there's a lot of factors and you want to just make it hard and just that's that's the main game here now the 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 easiest way to get into someone's notion is social engineering right which means that you actually call someone and ask them a few questions so you know when you get to like a site and you say like i forgot my password you have to fill in like your birth date and your last uh, second cousin's dog name or something <laughs> yeah. like it i hate those questions i hate those questions with a passion because anybody that did any social engineering knows that it's trivial to get that information once you know who the person is either you can find it in public records you can find it on their facebook page i was gonna say that there's yeah definitely not designed for this world day and age so if i have one of these questions it's usually the top one and the answer there isn't the answer to the question the answer is a random generated code that i got in my last pass because i keep those things in and last pass as like a 12 random digit thing or it actually says like it's in your last pass I've also been in many discussions with companies because they said, yeah, you forgot your password. It's like, I don't forget my password. I mean, LastPass does not forget passwords. Trust me, if it started doing that, there would be hell to pay for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Because so the only reason why you forgot my passport, uh, password is because you came at some point where you either had to rotate your password, which is actually good, but then just tell me like, hey, you didn't log into our site for the last three years and we rotated your password, which I can totally get behind. <laughs> Except for the fact, of course, that I can just reset it by sending it to my email. So if anybody hacks my email, then I'm done for. But that counts for nearly everyone here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't, don't mention yeah. Google crashing because it may actually crash. <laughs> yeah, that point. So <laughs> one tip that, that I can give to everyone here immediately like if you want make sure that your email has a different password than anything else just that one like if if you use the same password for your email for something like this change that password today don't wait do it today write it down on a piece of paper i don't care like that you don't want to forget it because that password probably important put it somewhere and enable two-factor authentication your Mail is your number one place that people are going to try to get in. Once I get into somebody's email, I can do anything. It's just done. I can get to your bank access. I can get to your Notion. I can get to whatever site you've been. And I'm pretty sure if it's Gmail and like me, you got Gmail from back to 2003, whatever I need, I can find it's in there. And I'm pretty sure there's some dubious mails in there because we've all lived. <laughs> Start typing with the archive. What what what's, yeah. what secrets are in here? <laughs> that like the 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 archive there. There's more in that archive than you want to know because Google knew what they were doing once they started setting up that Gmail bit. But yeah, that's that's like the main tip. Like the other one is get a password manager. But if you don't want to get a password manager, start with that. I was going to say, so, so kind of like side question that links the two things together. When it comes to Notion and their backup system storage of information, mm -hmm. if Notion was to get hacked, would we have access to our backed up storage data or not? We, we would. Like, I mean, I, I don't know Notion's uh, backend, and I would love to have a chat with an engineer at some point to actually get those questions answered because that would be tremendously fun uh, to do. Um, Maybe because, I could like, try and get one on and just like you can have a conversation with him and me just sit here going, can you explain that, please? 
yeah, like if they ever have an engineer, like I mean, engineers love talking about this. So like, if Notion has an ops engineer, then like if you say that there's whiskey, they'll be here. That's like how it works. Either that or beer. Right, it's, I'm going to the Slack the after the stream. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, that that's that's fun. Like, okay, and I, of course they can't tell everything because there's also confidentiality and stuff like that. But most systems they have like an offsite backup. Also, they're using uh, Amazon. I can see that because I. For the last video, I was checking through their whole uh, JavaScript set to see how they talk to their own API and stuff like that. Um, and Amazon actually has like a pretty good backup system. So like they probably use the database that's part of the Amazon cloud. So Amazon provides the database because maintaining databases is a lot of hard work. And paying a cloud provider to do all the hard work for you is a very good value proposition. Trust me, I've maintained multiple databases in my life. It's a pain. It still is at my current position. Like, yeah, it, it just, it's super annoying. I mean, if you can put that to the cloud and just say like, I need a, da a, a, a database and make sure that you keep separate backups that can be accessed, that's total win. Um, so is Notion oh, yes. in Amazon then? Yes. Okay. I, I that's, assumed that's... it was stored in somewhere, but I didn't know where. I was thinking like Google or something, but. Amazon. No, you can actually let me uh, uh, share my uh, screen with Notion and see if I can show. You don't have to stop sharing as well, by the way. Like, yeah, I need to share a different window because I get the Notion one here. So, but like, oh yeah, because you've got a big computer, you're all, you're all uh, tech. It doesn't work. And I need to share. Nah, and yeah, this is nerds in there. Uh, let me let me share the browser because if I don't share the browser, I can't show the backend. But like the, the simple thing that you can do, and that's already like people complained about this one and we're already at the correct a few people. So like if we go to Notion. Oh, wait. Showing Notion? Uh, I can see white. I can't quite see the screen. Yes, we're in Notion now. Ah, it's like a white page. So like this is like a, like a default Notion page. I don't really care in this case about where we are in Notion. I just need to be in Notion. And then I'm just going to take like a quick screenshot of your face and paste it in here. <laughs> when I wasn't paying attention. Uh-huh. Well, you wasn't paying attention because that's funny. <laughs> I, was, I was reading the chat and I was like, what? Oh, screenshot. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So like if you open this in Notion, you have like the button that says original. Mm-hmm. And then when it opens, if you look at the top bar, it says westamazonaws.com. Now, the only only type of program that would use Amazon's storage network to store images would be someone that's using Amazon. So that's why I know Notion is using Amazon cloud services for their solution. Also, one of the things uh, that was mentioned at some point, people said, like, yeah, this is insecure because if you this this URL here, if I send that to you, you can see this picture, even though you don't have access to Notion and I didn't share the page, but that's because this one contains like a password in it. It's like a large URL in it that is unique for this. And if you share that, then people can just get to this picture. So that's by design. This also makes it that Notion uh, or like Amazon in this case doesn't get like overrun with requests because it's trivial to just say, I need this picture sent to person compared to I need this picture and I first need to decrypt it and then Send to person. Pardon. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So that, these are things that I know. And there's also like uh, what I said, like if you go into the network inspectors, like if I go to like underwater in uh, a browser, uh, I can see what the site is accessing. And it's one of the things that like I still have the app in it because that's the last thing I checked. Is and that the developer tab from like pushing F12? Yeah. 
And if I uh, use the network, this shows all the traffic that Notion is doing. And you see here the API calls that are in there. See API version free, get page visits. Because mm -hmm. no modern application would not use an API because the web interface is constantly talking with Notion to get like updates on the blocks or the things that you change because it wouldn't work if you would, every time we would type in a letter, Notion would have to send the whole page up and down. Right. And you should be able to see it because like it's now monitoring. So let's see if I can make this. Basically, if anything happens, if Notion is talking to the backend, this thing starts moving on the top here. I'm going to show that. Like, we're going to refresh. You see this, like, moving? Yeah. And that's because Notion is, like, my website is talking to Notion. So if I go in here, if I wait till it stops a bit, and I start typing, then it will no, start constantly sending messages up and down. Nice. I like it. In insight into the, the back end of how websites and stuff work okay I'm, I'm i'm like mentally remembering this for like when i'm learning stuff <laughs> well if you're doing any html and stuff like that and of course you need this constantly to figure out what's happening most yeah. of the reasons why uh, people open the network tab is either to debug why things are slow because it shows you the exact timing and the bars on the top show you why things are taking long but to give an example of uh, how this is used, um, hackers, for example, if they go to a site and they try to find an, a way to log into the site, for Notion, for example, um, they type in a username and they type in a password and you press enter and then you get back either you typed in a wrong password or a user. Now, Notion would probably not tell you that the username is wrong because that would give valuable information to hackers because they could, okay, this username doesn't work, let's try the next username until they found one that would work. But it gets even more interesting than that because even if you hide that then they check how long the response time is because very often a site when you log in and the username doesn't exist it fails on the first query because it goes like user doesn't exist send it back and finding someone's password decrypting it setting it up takes 10 to 20 milliseconds longer so they just look at the timing and go like oh like if i have a username that works then it takes 60 milliseconds. And if it doesn't work, it takes 40 milliseconds. So if I ask it the username and I get my answer in 40, I know that this username doesn't exist. Keep trying the next one. That's that's how far this type of uh, nefariousness goes. Like these, oh, these yeah. people are ridiculous. I, I, can, and, I can see that being a, I can certainly see that being something people would do. <laughs> I mean, essentially yeah. that's, that's what we do with Notion just to a completely different extent. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll I'll move your face uh, away from my shared screen because uh, uh, that was the, the the bit that I wanted to show. Yeah, uh, I've stopped sharing. So, yeah. and I have to deal with uh, audits all the time as an infra engineer. So I get like dragged into a meeting, and then somebody checks the site, and they go over a whole list of things that are wrong. And this is one of those things that happens very often. Mm. Okay, Andy asked an interesting question. Um, Rome good in terms of privacy. I, I, I haven't read the privacy uh, of Rome. Uh, I was going to say, I haven't read much about the privacy. All I know is Rome is very similar to, quote, other SaaS applications. So I would imagine their privacy their, their privacy information is probably very similar to everything else. Evernote, Ample Note to do this, Trello, ClickUp, blah, 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 all of the apps. I imagine they're very, very similar. Uh, I can see Bass is checking in the background. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just want to. All I will uh, say is if they, I would imagine with their pricing, 
there, there might be yeah. something there that's that's maybe one way they can justify uh, charging so much. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't it's hard to like do a background check, but one of the things, of course, if you're using Rome, you could do the same thing. I mean, can you upload images in Rome? Because I haven't used Rome very much of it. Uh, yes. Yeah, you can. Well, yeah, you can try the same trick that I did there, where you just go to the original URL of the image, and then you can see on what cloud platform they're running it. Um, that tells you something about where it's hosted. Doesn't tell you how well they implemented it, but at least gives you a hint in the right direction. Of course, they have like a privacy segment, and of course. Because it's closed, because you need to pay to get to it, it makes it a less wide target to roam by default from a hacking perspective. Notion is something where you have much more possibilities to get in because there's lots of people there that are just trying it, people that just tried it for a little bit. And with Rome, because you need to pay for it, that means that their user base is more invested but also smaller, and that means that the attack service is smaller in that case. One yeah. could argue, of course, that because they're paying for it, they're business customers, and that makes them inherently more valuable. Rome research is supposedly targeted towards students because of the research, but you're like, well, students don't have as much money. Yeah, that's that's, that's like a weird. Yeah, like, let's it's charge an arm and a leg for this because students are well, yeah they're bathing in money these days. I've been told. Yeah, yeah, that, around with it. That that debt is is really great. Yeah. <laughs> It's like you you don't upgrade your laptop because it's style, right? It's like, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Kim asks, what would you say is the is the one thing everyone should slash uh, should do slash use to make their Notion browser PC more secure? Of course, there are lots of things we should all keep in mind and be wary of. But what is number one? Get a password manager. Do you no. need a password manager? Because I don't use one. I have like brain. Do you need a password manager? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> On the moment, I have more than fifteen hundred sites that I need to keep passwords off. I can't put that in my brain. I mean, I I don't know how many I have because I have a formula to make the yeah. password. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's like better than nothing, right? Because it's that's like as long as you don't have like the same password everywhere. I've, I've seen a few of those systems and they work. One of the reasons why I highly recommend a password manager is because it makes it so trivial to do the password thing. Like if I use LastPass, I go to a site, I type in my details, yeah, I want to order something on a web store, and I click on the generate random password, it fills it in, it stores it, and I forget about it. And then I get to like the same web shop like three years later, and I get to that site and LastPass pops up like, hey, do you want me to log in for you? And I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> and then... If that web shop, that's definitely a tech service because like web shops are like run by mom and pop shops sometimes and they're small and there's a thousand of them, so larger tech service. Because they all have a random password. If one of those gets hacked, I'm like, yeah, so I don't care. They have one password that was unique to them. So good luck with that, buddy. Like uh, have at it. Uh, so th that's why I would say like get a, like, get a password manager because password for everything is super important and be finicky about it. I trust LastPass. I've done some research before I started using it. Those guys are paranoid to the max. I mean, I'm not surprised. I mean, yeah, people like run a password manager software, obviously. If the NSA would go to LastPass and they say, I would like to get all the passwords from Mr. Goleman, they go like, yeah, that's cool and all, but we don't know which one of these ones is from Mr. Goleman. Because <laughs> they take my username and my password and they hash that. And that, out of that comes like a unique hash. 
and they have like this database with all the password databases in it, but they only have a hash. So they don't know which password database encrypted and all belongs to which person. That's how paranoid they are. That's why I use them. It's, it's ridiculous. I've, I, was reach, uh, uh, I was reaching like a blog post on, on how they set up their security and I was going like, those guys are mental. I would never do that much. That's the guy I'm going with. And I'm pretty sure way beyond what is normal. Let's do yeah. it. Yeah. That's 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 the guys that I want to protect my password. So they've been hacked at some point because that happens. You're a, you everybody wants to get into LastPass, right? Because if you get in there, if you get to my last pass or you get to anyone's last pass, that would be gold for any hacker. Um, I mean my credit card details are in there. That's like um <laughs> so but they got hacked, but of course that didn't help much because they got hacked, and that meant that, every, that they had access to their to their highly encrypted databases that had everybody's password. That needs like a different password for every database that's in there. So you know, like, LastPass got hacked. Yeah. So what? They got like one copy of my database, and it's encrypted by a strong password. And my LastPass password is something like this. <laughs> it's like they can't do anything with that. So I didn't. So they, I didn't worry then to see another wall yeah because that's what how security works right you have like multiple walls set up so that's why i said like the only password that isn't in my last pass is my gmail account password i keep that one separate because that's like the other golden gate that i have like if you get to email you can get to anything if you get to my last part you can get to anything those two are separate um and i have eye on the chat are there any bad password apps there are probably a lot of bad password apps i was like the, the amount of applications that are out there just for like the niche things that we talk about yeah. sometimes yeah, like screen recording there's hundreds of those passwords is a common thing so i would imagine there are hundreds of, or if not thousands of those I, I think that like the most obvious ones to avoid are the ones that are built into Chrome, Edge, and Firefox. Not because they're bad, because they do use encryption and stuff like that, but because the attack surface there is very large. Because somebody gets like around whatever they're using for their encryption, and you know everybody uses Chrome and Firefox, and, and Edge is really growing, at least on me. But like, that is like a gold mine, and it's not their core business to do passwords. LastPass has only one job and it's passwords. And I believe they get like one password, which I know a lot of friends of mine using. So I believe that one's pretty good, but they're very Mac centered and I don't use a Mac. So that's one of the reasons that that one dropped for me. Um, on the open source side, I've used KeePass, which does encryption, but it really lacks that cloud sync functionality, though they might've added stuff like that over time. And there you have to do a lot of the uh, heavy lifting yourself because you maintain your own encrypted password file which is way above what I would recommend most people do because it's then you need to start digging into this stuff and really know what you're doing. And if you make a mistake, then somebody has all your passwords, which is bad. Yeah. So I know uh, when I, when I spoke to Marie last week, uh, she shows she's given me access to her, her toolbox, her digital toolbox uh, that she uses. And there's a link in the live stream. If anyone wants to have a look at the, the tool she's using or used to use and uh, pass one, I think, or fast pass, pass one, one of those two, uh, was like one of the first things she had up there. And I was like, okay, password manager, obviously number one on the list. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, yeah, Dave, I, I, your response I, I, to this. <laughs> <clears throat> it, 
It works fine. It hasn't crashed on stream once. Like, uh, I, I, I really need to borrow, ask, ask if my son is still using my shadow account and maybe borrow that one to you for a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, my, my stream hasn't crashed. The internet, however, has had a bit of a moment, but that's the internet. That's not my computer. No, but like, you know, shadows are just like a virtual computer. So you have like the whole computer on the cloud with like a beefy process and you just stream it to your laptop. You don't notice a difference, except the fact that the whole streaming is running on like a really fat PC on the cloud somewhere. I've, I've used that to do my vlog during holidays because I don't have a PC with me then. And then I just run my tablet, runs to Shadow, and then Shadow runs DaVinci Resolve with everything on it. And it just renders my videos in 10 minutes. And I'm just sitting on the couch in my pajamas going like, that was the vlog I did yesterday. It was like, that was easy. That'd be nice. I mean, something that actually did surprise John was, so mm -hmm. I've got a, a Canon M50 now, uh, the Canon mm -hmm. I'm using now. Uh, and, I was, <laughs> uh, and I was using my webcam to record me. Obviously, a webcam, I think it, I don't even know what, really bad resolution. And the mm -hmm. Canon's like 1080, can be 4K, but I don't use the 4K. And John was like, your computer is not gonna let you edit those videos. <laughs> yes, it does. It just it, takes a bit longer. That's how this works, right? The thing is, the editing, no difference. No difference in the editing speed whatsoever. I've, I've edited like 30, 40 minute worth like of a video clip um, in, in there all at once, going through it, cutting, doing it, adding loads of stuff. Doesn't change a thing. The only difference is the exporting, like the exporting and rendering yeah. speed instead of it being an hour and a half. What are you, what are you editing? Premiere probably? or Four more or nine. Well, for, for more <laughs> ten, sorry, uh, it's like yeah, ten. Uh, for more, it's pretty good, actually. That's like that my, my number one recommendation to people because people go like, "What do you use?" I said, "I use DaVinci Resolve." And what should I use? Not DaVinci Resolve. Like <laughs> that, that has a learning curve. Like that's that's, yes, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, yes, I can, but like I wouldn't recommend it to beginners because it's like you do a lot of work, and all this stuff is only needed if you're. A fanatical nerd, you want to spend a lot of time figuring out. But color grading, oh. <laughs> I, I, I even color graded photos in that one. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, DaVinci Resolve is one of those applications that it's free, but it's free mm -hmm. for a reason. Like, you need like you need almost like half a degree of understanding to, un to, to get all the buttons and where things go yeah. and what to do. For more Da Vinci Resolve is easy. Like anybody goes, like, why is DaVinci Resolve free? I said, like, one of the panels, if you get that, is twenty-five thousand dollars. It's like you can get a small car for their hardware. It's like this is meant for professional people that have way too much money. Like, yep. yes, I have DaVinci Resolve. I have none of the other gear because even I can't afford that with my job. It's like yeah, and I mean, the, the thing that attracted me to Filmora was two things. One, uh, there was a YouTube channel that I watched anyway uh, mm -hmm. that did loads of how-tos. I was like, well, I already follow this person. I already know half the stuff because I enjoy watching his content anyway. Elsewhere, mm -hmm. um, Daniel Battelle is the name. He's a, He, he yeah. does stuff on StreamYard as well and TubeBuddy and Nick and blah, blah, blah. Um, and the other thing was I pay for it once and then that's it. And it's literally just a, a, a basics. Like you, you don't, there's no hard way to look at it. It literally tells you where to go, what to do. It's very hard not to figure it out. Um, whereas, uh, I don't know, like we were speaking very briefly before this, but the application I was exploring yesterday, the brain, 
yeah. really, really old <laughs> when you look at the interface. Like, what is this? And there are tons and tons of features and you'd need to go through all of the menus to find everything. And that's what I spent like two hours doing yesterday. Uh, mm-hmm. And I will probably do uh, another one for the beta 12 that obviously mm-hmm. came out. I'll probably do that Monday. And you're just like, there's so much, so many buttons to push where to find and what to go. Yeah, that's like... Uh, so, okay. I'm, I'm just scrolling through, see if I can find some questions. So this one, excuse me. Amazon have all my data that I put into Notion. That was that was an interesting. Correct. Mm. All your data is stored at Amazon. And uh, one thing that I found uh, annoying, for example, is that like I was looking at the um, picture that I just had to you, and that one says US West Two, and that means that my Notion data is stored in the US. And that's, I can talk all day about how draconian the US rules are. Um, but that was, of course, obvious because Notion is run in the US. It would be very nice, though, if they would upgrade it so that A, Notion is actually hosted near my country, which is good for response times, and B, because that's trivial because it's Amazon. So you just say, like, I would also like this zone. Um, and it would be very nice if my data wasn't stored in the US. Yeah, so that was that was actually a question. I've I've seen a lot of people in the Reddit talk about, oh, we want a a, a Europe Discord, a, a Europe Discord, a Europe server, a European server, or an Australian server, or whatever. And with them storing the data in Amazon, I assume Amazon have servers in Europe, etc. So when it's I want a Notion server in Europe, would it be an Amazon server that Notion are using in Europe? Uh, basically, it depends a bit on how their setup is done. Um... But it should be trivial because with Amazon, you can actually say like, hey, I would like to use data centers all over the world. And they will just pick the closest one because Amazon is smart. Like they have to pay for data that has to send over the lines. Like if I'm accessing Notion now, some elect- some poor electrode is getting sent all the way under the ocean to the other side of the, like the, you know, has to enter the US, which is already horrible enough as it is, <laughs> then get the data, get, get, out, get back to Europe. <laughs> Yeah, and then give me the data, and they have to do that every time I type a letter. I mean, that's that's horrible. Um, and Amazon needs to pay for that. So as soon as you tell Amazon, like, hey, you can also host it in Europe, and you have enough people in Europe, then Amazon starts spinning up instances of Notion in Europe, meaning that I start accessing the version in Europe as well, meaning that the lines are shorter. It means that I'm quicker working with Notion, which I'm not sure what happened, but you know, lately I've been waiting on Notion too much. But I'm not alone in that, so I'll just wait it out. I mean, it needs to be sorted. I'm pretty sure some engineer with Notion has this on their board because it's annoying. And they work with Notion, so they'll find it annoying as well. Um, and, yeah. yeah, of course, like having it closer by means that I get all the benefits that I would expect from the European Union. I think it's not a technical issue because that's pretty easy. Um, it's the whole shalada that comes with becoming part of European Union. So they would probably need, if they want to do it right, they would need a sister company in in Europe that would run the European section of Notion. And they would have to modify their Notion so that if I log in as a European, then internally it would route me to the European set of servers, avoiding anything going to the US. So if I would upload an image, it would now like bosses uploading an image. So we put it into the, US, uh, like the US, but in the European server. 
And that would make me personally very happy because I know that the protection laws for my privacy and data in Europe is much better than the US. I mean, the US is horrendous. Uh, basically, anybody that's not living inside the US isn't considered a human being by US law. It's like, you know, we don't care. I mean, if you're holding that oil drum, we're coming for it. It's like, no, it's like, no. no right mind engineer tech per person would want their stuff really long time in the US. I mean, I like Notion a lot and I'm already going like, I'm already part of Google. So I'm pretty sure half my life is already backed up in the US server somewhere, 70 gigs of data, <laughs> but I don't trust Google. That's why I have another service making backups of Google. Cause <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I think, uh, I can't remember who it was. Someone in chat said a couple of days ago, they've got like, I think it was Sarah, maybe. She said she's got like a backup of her cloud, which is backed up somewhere else. I was like, wait, so you've got like five backups of your stuff? She was like, yes. That sounds about right. Stack backup, I have the iDrive backup, then I normally have an external drive backup, but that's currently with somebody else who I restore data for because she had the data loss and she needed someone to recover that. Uh, and then of course I have like my drive and then I have two drives I have stuff on it. And then I keep my old SD cards when I do a recording. So I keep that one around for a month before I wipe them. I was gonna show you the external hard drive, but the wire is too short and it can't get in front of the camera. I was like, where is it? I've got literally every single port out of my laptop is full. There, There is nothing that like, I have all the USBs used. I've got like, I have a USB, I don't even know what you call it, like an adapter that gives me more ports for all the stuff because obviously I've got a camera at the moment live stream. I got a mic, then I've got my external hard drive and then like all the other bits and bobs that come out of it. You know, my, my laptop is, it does a lot. And I've got, I've got a keyboard as well. So, because I don't like the laptop keyboard because it's too flat. <laughs> no, that's, that's true. Like, I want to add something before Chris is like busy moving all this data out of Notion. Like, Amazon having access to your data is not the same as having access. Like they have the data because it's on their service. But of course, as a cloud provider, they need to encrypt it. And then only Notion can encrypt it. So they can, they have your data. They could erase it potentially that in theory, if they wanted to, um, but they can't access it at least not by contractual obligations that they have. Uh, I'm pretty sure though, that like if the U S government came to ask for it very kindly, uh, they have some, harsh re regulations for that to actually access which is annoying yeah that was just resolve not right now and um, so when it comes <laughs> to the the building an app thing because i i don't want to build well okay I'll, I'll try and phrase this in a way that makes sense i want to build an app for me but i don't want to build an app in general because i know everything good that goes on behind an app i don't want to have anything to do with it security yeah. being one of them <laughs> um i want to build an app as a project for me to understand how apps are built right yeah so the people that are building apps using other pieces of software like the the self-build no code app type things that are going on all over the place i'm assuming the data is stored in wherever that app because what they're doing is they're building an app using an app, but the app is storing the data elsewhere. So I'm yeah. assuming the app that someone's building is storing data in the same place the parent app is storing the data. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it makes sense, but it doesn't have to be like that because um, 
what these apps usually do is that the data needs to be stored somewhere. Now, in the most simple form, it's stored in the same database set that they have in the cloud because that's easy. That's just clicking, and then they can just connect it up. Anything that's uh, any a bit more sophisticated, like I think Google had like this self-app cloud bit as well. But of course, that hangs to the Google databases. But what they do is that you make like your own database instance in the cloud that is yours, that you have like a key to, and then the app stores it in there. Um, meaning that there's two databases. That's the one where the app was built in and the one where your data is in, and those things are then separated. Usually, you don't have a choice like if it's in Amazon or cloud, whatever they used to set up their cloud, it will be the same one because else they would have to write APIs for all the cloud interfaces and no one's got time for that. So that that probably won't work, at least not with the self-built apps, unless you really like go up another tier and you download something like the Android SDK and you make an app in there. I've tried it once, I gave up on it. Um, I did once pay someone on Fiverr, I think 75 euros to create an app for me to add a task to Todoist because there wasn't an Android app at the time. Might have not been Todoist, could have been another Todoist app, uh, to-do app, but I really wanted like quick entry that's because I live on that. And so I, I was like, it was nothing more than like open it, type in, press the enter button. That was about it. Yeah, so I'm curious with the with the app space. Obviously, there are there are what I would class as big apps, like the the notions, like the big task managers, the project managers. Uh, then you have the the extension apps. I don't know if they are actually apps or just extensions uh, that go onto the browser typically. Um, and then there are sort of like the the middle ground apps that are sort of they'll sit on your Mac or sit on a phone or an Android or whatever that are just one use case specific. Uh, how how do they all do it all? Do, does that mean like how how do they build an app with the privacy sec, uh, privacy and security side of of it? Because essentially they're taking data or using data mm -hmm. or using an API in some way. So how mm -hmm. do they how do they do it? Uh, so one of the, the 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 ways for building software these days is nearly everything's connected, right? Um, this is also why uh, stuff like offline mode is very hard because offline mode is usually comes later because that bit is some hard engineering because then you need to get <laughs> data, <laughs> change it locally, send it back. That's pain. You don't want to do that as much as possible. Um, but of course, once you are something like Notion and you have some space, then you need to have it at some point because people start asking for it and it doesn't become workable. But most apps, talk with an API to a backend and are nothing more than a button on the front end that pushes a button on the backend for you. Meaning that either you're on the website or you're in the app and either it's big or small, it's all nearly just push a button, do an API call, change data in the backend, come back, show you the data. And then very often they all use HTML and JavaScript, at least like a JavaScript engine like jQuery or probably React or Node.js or stuff like that. I'm not a developer, so don't pin me on that one. And I'm not sure what's the current <laughs> I, famous. I've heard of those YouTube. things. Yeah. I've heard of them. <laughs> Anyhow, but the, like basically an app is like a web like a website very often these days, unless it's a very optimized apps. So like if you take something like uh, like like Notion, um, I think that one's a web app. Like they just take their website and they take large parts of it through, but then they mix in like part of it locally and part of it remote to make it snappier, which is good. 
this was also one of the reasons why on my tablet I was using the website very long because they didn't have columns until they added that to the app, which was a yay moment for me. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, I'm like, uh, getting excited on my Notion features. Um, so that makes it like easy to secure as well because there's only that moment between transactions when you're typing in the data and pushing the button that you really need to think about the whole uh, security bit because the rest gets handled by HTTPS because the thing that you see on your screen all the way until their backend is encrypted by standard internet technology, which makes sure that, and the only thing that they add to it is that their app checks that same certificate thing. So you know what I said in the beginning, there's a middleman and they both talk to that one and say like, hey, is this okay? Is that is that Notion? It's like, yeah, there's Notion, ah! And then they're great. So that's 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 what you're, what you're trying to go for here, right? It's like that's the simplest form that there is. If it's a bit more complicated, um, then one of the ways they keep it secure, and that's both for Google and for Apple, is that they use something like a signage code. So once I make the code and I say this is okay, I give it to Google. Google says like, is this your code? I say like, this is the key that I can use to say that this is my code. And Google says like, takes the key to it, signs it, makes a package. And that package goes to an Android phone. And if somebody would change my code, even one letter in it, the key wouldn't work anymore and the thing would fail. Apple does the same thing. The only difference there is that there's a two-week process in between where the Apple engineers look at it and make sure you're not trying to sell something without giving them their cut, which is how that runs on that end of the spectrum. So usually if you see places where the Apple app comes later than the Android app, that's because their process is longer. On the plus side having that extra process in between means that there's less craft coming in because if anybody ever dug into like the small app section of android we all know that's a hellscape nobody wants to enter that i'm still not sure how they filter it out these days but oh my god i was with android when it got started and that was horrible <laughs> that, that's why you find those apps where you can like hold your phone and then drink it like a beer with which we used to do when the things just came out that was novel back in the day <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's still a lot of visual apps out there. Um, mm. So mo moving through to the offline mode then, because I, I don't know how much you've explored Obsidian, but Obsidian is, my understanding is Obsidian is essentially a text editor rather than an app, or is it an app with offline mode? Because uh, they're, they're stored as markdown files, and then you just edit mm -hmm. them in. Yeah. Is it an app or is it an editor? Like it's an app that you locally download, and then it uses Markdown files as a backend. Yeah. So it's basically a text editor because it opens a Markdown file. It does some tricky things by analyzing all the Markdown files, getting data out of it, um, and because it stores it, um, I can take like the assumption here that what it does, it reads all the files, makes an internal memory array like a mini in-memory database where it collects all the data and then sends it back to you. And that's, it feels nearly instant, but for computers, it probably took a couple of seconds, which is like ages. It's like they'd be tapping and like going like on their, it's like, this is, this is taking long. Uh, <laughs> but of course the benefit is that your data is all readable and easily accessible. You can put it anywhere. Right. Yeah. So the, so is that, is that technically an offline mode or is that just something that's reading the files you've already got on your computer and doing something with it? Because it is, it is offline because it's local storage, but it was never really online to start with. <laughs> yeah. So the, it, well, it is offline mode because you can use it without the internet. That's the old definition of offline. Yeah. Uh, the thing that you then go is like, okay, how do I do the syncing from offline to online? So with Obsidian, for example, I would probably use something like Git, which is what used for code. 
it works very well for markdown files and that means that i can upload my markdown files when i get online again so i can go in a plane do all my stuff in obsidian while i'm in the plane land and then open my git and say push and it goes like to the server and pushes it now the thing might hit something if somebody else um uh, makes a change as well but with git that works because then if somebody changed the same thing it will say tell the second person hey you both changed it do you want to merge it yes and then you merge it um, most people it would work easier to use just something like google drive or another place to store it on and then basically it's a semi online offline mode because if you make a change it gets sent to google drive and then google drive sends it to somebody else or um but it's of course uh remember that when i was uh, watching notion i said like it's doing api calls because else anytime you type a word in it would have to upload everything because that's what what's happening in the background so it's really using like a, an 18 wheeler truck to move a book around it's like i just typed a word excellent put it in the truck and then they move it over to the other side to get it on the internet it's, it's really overkill but you know these days because of all the computer power we have except you because your laptop but you know we we just we just i'll take it, I'll take it. <laughs> it's like you have to wait a bit like it happens it's not yeah. that bad so obsidian have have got a publish mode uh, and i think obsidian and the brain i.e the app that i explained yesterday i think they work very similar because they're both stored in markdown files on your computer so yeah. they're both local files and then you can upload it to so obsidian have their obsidian publish and then the brain mm -hmm. it's the brain cloud that's what they're called uh, but essentially mm -hmm. they're the same thing you sync your markdown files with an online version and that's what you're saying is you're just Basically, you're you're pushing the Markdown file to an online cloud service storage somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's what you're doing. You're you're putting it it like on a storage. So like it's it's like they have their own Google Drive, and if they're smart, they're using something like Git because then they only upload the changes. So if you have like a 100-page document that you made and you change three sentences, then their local system would compare the new version and the old version, say like, hey, these two lines should change. That's everything that happened. Excellent. Like, you just need to send 100 bytes over telling the online server that, like, in that file on row 100, this word was changed to that. If you make that change, we're happy. Right. And then I'm assuming because it's online, it then needs a database or a, a server to store that data separately to the local files? Yeah. And right, it depends a bit on how they want to store it. But. Yeah, so they'll be stored in two different places on your local computer, which you can sync yeah. to the, the cloud storage, or on the cloud storage, which would be saved in one of the marriage. How many storage dumps are there? Obviously, Amazon is there. Are there many big servers that people use? Uh, well, I think that the main ones currently are at the top of my head Google, which has their cloud computing platform. Then you have Amazon, of course, that's a big one. Uh, Microsoft with Azure, that's what I'm currently working on for my current customer. Um, I think those three are the biggest one. I'm trying to think of if I'm forgetting any of the large players. Amazon was the one that started this whole gig. I mean, they... they... They're, they're on it. <laughs> oh, my God, when they started doing this. It was like, you know, was just, that's that's when people in my field said, like, uh, like oh, my God, we're going to lose our jobs because they automated everything. And I'm just looking at that like, no, no, no. They're just going to find something more stupid, and then I'm going to charge them for that. 
So, <laughs> you know, they, they always figure out something new because now we have this cloud computing platform and then they still end up at my desk and it's like, I don't know how to do this cloud stuff. It's like, excellent. I can tell you that. Yep. And then, and then we work on that. Every automation, every integration, every tech development, you're still needed for something. As soon as they bring yeah. in an automation, how do I make the automation? How do I start the automation? Even yeah, with the tools right now. There's people that need it. Which, which is fun because it's like, it's like I mean, I, I am growing. My job. I can't keep up anymore, at least. Well, I can probably keep up if it was the only thing I was doing, but I just tend to do a lot of things at the same time. So these days I trust other people to tell me how the cloud works. Um, and I just mess around it a bit so that I know enough when people are trying to bullshit me. That's, uh, <laughs> that's about the level of it. But uh, I, I've, I've moved up now. So like I'm like on the manager level and that one's much harder. So like you're too busy dodging knives to uh, actually get into the nitty gritty of the code bit. But it's like, okay, it's like, it's fun. Yeah, yeah, very true. Uh, I, I've seen this comment and I was like, I want to bring it up. I love learning about security related topics, but very interesting stuff. Great to see how it plays into Notion. And that that is that is the point that I think a lot of people kind of like not necessarily neglect. I know, I know from for me as a like perspectively looking inside, I know I use mm -hmm. the app. I don't know the behind the scenes, how the app works or anything like that. So when people start moaning about I want this feature, I want that feature, why doesn't it do this? Why doesn't it do that? I don't know enough behind the scenes to say this is why. Um, and security was one of those areas. I'm like, there must be a reason why they don't have end-to-end -end contription or 2FA or whatever it is. And I would imagine it's mm -hmm. that there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes as to how how to integrate it all. Um, yeah. Could, yeah could you, like a ridiculous uh, amount of work. Like the, the 2FA. Could they put 2FA into Notion? Well, I assume they could, but how do you reckon that would affect Notion's usability potentially speed i don't know well technically like they have a form of two-factor authentication because you can log in with uh, something like google and google has the two-factor authentication so you use that to set up um and two-factor two authentication itself <clears throat> isn't um that complicated so they could easily implement it um it just needs to be part of their priority board because they have like tons of things that they want to implement notion are uh, perfectionists definitely on their uh usability side mm. um and my feeling looking out outside in is that they have like a lot of user interface engineers and usability uh sets they're kind of lacking on the infra security end. there's not enough people there shouting about it but then again um we always get shafted on the uh our division uh because we whine about things like backups and like <laughs> getting stuff uh, up and running and the, the that just takes away from the features everybody are waiting for because the front end stuff is of course what sells uh, uh, the system uh, because yes we're talking security now and lots of people care about security but let's face it it's not the thing that they were checking when they deciding if they were going to start or not start with notion it's it's like exactly. the second thing, the thing that comes after it it's like oh, i'll just mess around with it and they'll probably fix it soon what i used to think when i started with notion i was like ah oh, the app you can't take that long it's like <laughs> I stand corrected on that one, but it's like, okay, I mean, the other hand, I know I know better than this. Appy isn't that important in the grand scheme of things, and security is one of those things that, that takes a lot of work, and it's definitely hard if you need to implement it backwards. But for two-factor two authentication, to get back to it, the amount of work, you would need to store the key on their side, because two-factor authentication has like a, a, a key that's in it. 
and then you would just use something like Google Authenticator or LastPass Authenticator because there's an open standard for it. So you just get like this QR code and then you scan it with an app and then you get these nice uh, two-factor authentication codes. Let me see if I can uh, sh show mine because these change every few seconds. So it doesn't matter that I show those on stream. But like these are my, let's see this scan. So these are all the codes that get, get generated for different apps. Yeah. And yeah, because um, yeah, it's way too much for most people. But like I used to have two and then I got to a company that actually uses it, but doesn't have like one central login. And then you suddenly have like a stack. Yeah. Um, but that, that's good. Like, I mean, so that's, that's the amount of technical work isn't that bad, but of course, when you're Notion and you make a mistake there, <laughs> yeah, that's the part that it gets hard. There's like there's a lot of people that 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 aren't going to be happy. So you would need to set it up, make sure that it can be beta tested, so that a small subset of people can test and see if it doesn't break left and right. Uh, is it easy enough to set up? One of the things I love about Notion is that it's very easy to use because they don't add everything. If I compare it to Coda, Coda has a lot of work to figure out. Like I'm sometimes writing stuff in there and go like, why didn't I know this sooner? There's 1,500 buttons. And then I get the Notion and it's like, oh, this is so simple. I mean, I don't even write many formulas. I think one of my first templates, you made a comment like, what, a project template without formulas? Well, who does that? It's like, <laughs> I do, because I don't care about formulas that much. Like, I got two in my new one because <laughs> I needed a few examples, but they're not really uh, not as useful as, as they could have been. But also because, like, I like the simplicity of Notion. So it's one of those places where I go and I just store information. Uh, it's and it funny always looks like nice. The amount of people that say, Notion's so complicated. I'm like, no, it's as complicated as you want to make it. <laughs> yeah. If you want to really? have I mean, just... tables and linked views and loads of toggles, <laughs> loads of formulas, then you can. But if you just want to have a page, just just have a page. Yeah, well, I think very often where that one goes wrong is because people look at templates that people build. And a lot of the templates that are built are built by people that have been using Notion for a long time. And they've been adding a lot of stuff to it to make it like really add value. But all that added value also means it's more complex. Um, it's one of the comments I got on the, the, the project management video that I made. It's like, oh, this is so simple. Like, I can use it. Like, that was the goal. Like, it wasn't to be complex. It was just to get you started. And you build it because it's Notion. You get to build. That's that's the fun part. Like, uh, except fun. for me because I build stuff and then I have to reverse engineer it and remove all the craft so I can share it with people. <laughs> I was going to say that that's one of the reasons I want to learn to code is like I, I enjoy the building process. I enjoy creating, like having having control over my own thing. Um, and yeah, and Notion it had formulas and it is picked up. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the ability to create my own thing, I'm like yes. Um, but Notion's not entirely my own thing. I'm still restricted, even though it's a no code builder. Yeah. I'm still restricted. And there are features in other apps that you can do, recurring tasks being one of them, weekly calendar view being another one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there are features yeah. that are in other apps that aren't in Notion. And if if I could code, I could. I, I don't know if this is even possible. It's, it's something in my mind that I would like is I could just build my own app for me. <laughs> yeah. Just like a local storage, my own app for me functions the way I want. Add a feature when I want it, um, because I'd have the ability to do the, to do that. I don't know if that's possible. It'd be nice. Um, One of the main things to do is like if you learn a bit of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, is that you can, for example, 
use things like Grease Monkey to add JavaScript to an Ocean page. So you can add a button or a bit of functionality that you're specifically looking for. Uh, like before they allowed hiding of properties, I did that. I had like a JavaScript that allowed me to hide and show properties once in a while. I didn't use it that often. I'm very happy with the Notion implementation because that helps a lot. Also because it's over systems. Um, but yes, yeah, uh, like uh, being able to code as soon as you, you 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 do a bit of code, it starts compounding because once you know one language, it's easier to get into the next. And that's something that happens with me as well. Is like I very rarely have to do things two or three times because at some point my ears just go like, I know I can automate this. And if I need to do it one more time, then I'm going to automate it because I'm done with this. I'm not doing it again. <laughs> no, this is not. This is computer work. Give it to computers. Is it, uh, was it, is it Seth Godin? I think it's Seth Godin that says somewhere in his like blog, he mentioned he was sort of saying something along the lines of uh, if – if it can be done easier or quicker, then like you can reduce the price type thing with with the whole marketing. And that, and I was just sort of thinking, okay, so essentially, if it's a repeated process, we could get a computer to do it for free. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 that's where I think a lot of jobs are sort of disappearing. And you're like, okay, so now I need to find a different skill set that can't be repeated. And creativity is something computers can't do yet. I said they're pretty hard at work at it though. It's like, <laughs> yeah. man, that's jumping at the bit there. It's like I'm sometimes looking at it and go like, ooh, this is getting pretty close. But the plus side on that is, and that's that's one of the things that we're doing, is that all this artificial intelligence that is basically catching up on us is also helping us to move forward because it allows me to do more in the same time. So for example, with uh, DaVinci Resolve, I can rotoscope someone and da vinci does it for me that's a form of automatic intelligence that does my work and it's not perfect i mean oh my god i haven't had one time that i didn't have to like tweak it 16 times before it get it usable but it shows that like half of the work gets done and then i only need to do the other half which is still half of the work done which is great yeah oh man auto hotkey i love auto hotkey this is like that's good stuff it's <laughs> That's good stuff. That <laughs> yeah, out of key is good stuff. Like the the only thing that that really like, I got a stream deck these days, and I was like, yeah, why do we need a stream deck? I'm not a streamer. Like, I I don't even read the chat as my friends constantly tell me. Like, he's not reading the chat. Like, I always have to go on Discord to tell him what he's doing. But the stream deck, for example, is such an automation tool because they got all these automation things and buttons that you can push. So. I have like a button to switch my camera in and out, but also I have a button to mute and push the talk and switch to different views. I got one to restart my sound engine when I stuff isn't is wonky to reset it. I got one for Don't you have I like got, a Siri or an Alexa or something? Sorry if I just triggered everyone's thing, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's I've got like I've got Google Assistant devices throughout the house. I already know not to say like the keyword in front of it because my whole house wakes up. <laughs> uh, so, so what do you and, use Stream Deck for that's separate to your thing? I use the Stream Deck to uh, for DaVinci Resolve. So I got all these hot buttons. So if I go to DaVinci Resolve, I go to the DaVinci Resolve, and it shows like color things, uh, any feature that I use often in DaVinci, but not that often. So it shows me like the four colors that I want to mark my clips have, and then it shows like with a text what I mean by that. So rough cut, fine cut. Uh, ready for uh, for preview. It just needs like an info block and done or something like that. I have one. I don't even know my screen right now. I use it when video calling. Like in the beginning when I was chatting with you, like on the moment I think my M50 is already off. 
but I can switch cameras. So I use it to, to switch the, the, the cameras there. And I use it very often during the morning when I have uh, daily standups because I use it to pop up the Yira board so that people can see um, what uh, what work I need to do and also a few of those fun things where like uh, the rollover stuff and uh, the things that Twitch streamers have. But uh, in practice, you don't use that that often. Uh, and uh, a lot of things like small things that automate. I have like clipboard checks on it. So I have like one button and I get like a dashboard with all these snippets of text that I constantly need to tell people. And then I can just click there, push that button, and it types the whole text for me, rams enter, and I can keep going with my day, which I can do without the hotkey just fine. But it's I was going to say similar to auto hotkey or text expander or whatever yeah. thing, yeah. But it's it's like like those tidbits that I don't use very often because I guess like a visual overview where I can just push a button for it, and if you use it often enough, then because the buttons are always on the same spot, it becomes like this mental thing. So it's like oh, and it's the same pop pop. There's like two buttons. The one to switch to like all the ones and it just i know where it is because i used it five times already yeah so the, the like, spatial awareness thing is uh very well then i don't know whether you've seen it but thomas and ali did a, a collaboration video on like the tools that they use it's hidden or whatever uh and thomas uh, thomas frank was saying that he has a keyboard and he maps certain keys on his keyboard to things in his auto hotkey to do those 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 commands those actions so i was like yeah Pretty cool. Yeah, auto hotkey is like a lifesaver. Like the, the the most used one that I have is the um, uh, KRBG. So if I type KRBG, it removes it and it says kind regards, Bas Scholleman. So like anytime that I need to type to someone, I, I use the Dutch version much more often as uh, MVG. met vriendelijke groeten. That is like a Dutch way of uh, saying the same thing. Uh, that one I use like all the time. If I'm anywhere where I don't have auto hotkey, I just immediately go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gail's just saying that he misses the, the auto hotkey from going to Mac. Ah, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> uh, get 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 a get a stream deck. Really, like, um, if you're going like, ah, should I really get a stream deck? You can just get the app and just take the trial for seven days. You can use your phone as a stream deck. But you can just try to solve and everything. If you, if you, I was like sold in two days. Like I, I need this in my life, and that's when I when I got like the, the biggest stream deck that I could get. Because <laughs> I'm a nerd. How many buttons has it got? Like twenty four. Yeah, let's see, like four by eight. So yeah, sixteen thirty two. Is that? Yeah, Jesus, that's a lot of buttons. <laughs> and then of course, like you have maps and folders. So I, I have like a the 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 eight buttons on the right are to switch between different layouts. So I got an OBS layout. I got a screencast layout. So wait, so you've got eight buttons on the side to map the thirty two buttons that you've got? No, no, the thirty two buttons. I eight of those are dedicated to switch between because. You, you can't it, it, there's not really like a way to do that fixed but i just copied the same buttons over because it, then it works like tabs so i don't have to think about it i just know like the the, the third one uh from the top on the right is always go to davinci and the fourth one is my voice meter that means that i can control all my audio with the stream deck because i've got like volume trackers for my uh, headphones but also for my microphone for my speakers for my wireless headphones those are all like on one display. They show like individual volume. And I can also adjust, for example, uh, the volume for my music, which I put on like a separate track, uh, which is ideal because when I'm uh, working, I need my music a bit softer. Like if I'm editing or stuff like that, I want to be able to hear it. 
and then once i'm doing something where i just need to like get lost in the zone but i don't need to concentrate as much then i can switch my music on higher it's like um have you ever heard that we all that we're always using 100 percent of our brain capacity i mean there's arguments going backwards and forwards yeah, so back and forth about it but basically our brain only has like an on and an off switch and that's one of the problems if we do something which only takes like 10 or 20 percent like listening to someone and we're not like totally engaged uh and we have 80 percent left we tend to start drifting off because we want to waste that 80 percent somewhere so the music is like a like if i put it loud it takes up a lot of that and if i take it less then it takes up less of that and that fills it up to that max so that i don't get distracted uh, the yeah. other thing that I, I I use like like I got all these toys like I think you talked about it like stuff that I need to fiddle with and around. I don't need it here because I'm talking about security. But yeah, <laughs> I've been the whole uh, time, like the whole what is it? Almost two hours now, like, and the whole time. Yeah, like, where was mine? I don't know where mine is, but like yeah, I had the same habit once I got into playing with the the cap on it. Yeah, like I got the Canon M50 as well, so like you know. Yeah, <laughs> Canon team here. M50 is a wonderful device. Um, Chris, I am. I'm going to say this. Comparison. It's it's context and comparison. I, I'm sure you are smarter than both of us in something that you know about that we don't. So it's certainly certainly a, a comparison. But otherwise, like, yeah, no one's ever done. No one has ever done that. That's my thought, anyway. No, it's like <laughs> whatever knowledge you build up through through life is where you is whatever you focus on. Like, I have to explain that one to my son as well very often because he looks at me and he goes like, "Why don't I know anything?" It's like I got twenty five levels ahead of you, like twenty five years more experience building stuff, doing things. And I said like, "There's no comparison in that regards." It's, the the security stuff that I'm talking about here. I mean, let's face it. I started programming when I was twelve. This is like, and when I was 12, there was no internet. Like you had to go like to the manual and just go to A and try and type it. I, I don't have that free time anymore. I'm so glad it's so much easier to collect information these days, but yeah. it's all built up over years. And years. What? Collecting information brings up a whole new issue. It's easier to collect it, but now you've got more of it. You need to sift through it. Oh, yeah, that's like our whole job these days. It's like exactly. people sending me way too much information and then me dumbing it down. It's like, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't want from the nerdy notion Ireland. I didn't miss those days. Yeah, no, neither do I. Like, actually, like, I found a floppy disk today. I was like, what? <laughs> I'm old enough to remember what that is. <laughs> Just. Oh, yeah, I'll bring that one up. Oh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> do you, like, uh, we'll go last question yeah. because we're, we're closing in on two hours yeah okay last question bass do you think it's easier to learn uh my sql if you know how to use a notion database yes yes because like once you work with tables in notion you already get like the core that's what tables are and if you use roll up then you also know stuff about relations because that's what what how databases. This is one of the things that we're talking about. Not, like I spent years looking at databases and not getting what it was until I figured out that databases have tables that point to each other, and that's how you get data structures. And that was really tricky for me. So anybody that thinks like, oh, he's talking about it so easy, that took me years. Like, um, and 
Notion shows that in a much more simplistic way, like it's much easier to get around because you can touch the data and you can change it and very easily add a column. So once you have that down, it's much easier to learn MySQL. Now, if we get into optimizing MySQL, that's a whole different ball game and that takes years. And then I'm still telling developers that their code is terrible. <laughs> but I've been a database uh, administrator for a couple of years. So when you get someone that spent like two days programming something, go like, look, I optimized it. And you go like, yeah, I could have done the same thing with a five minute SQL query update. Like, to, to query the database quicker that that's yeah that they don't don't, don't like those kind of things <laughs> but it is true like i mean you, you're not going to win from a whole set of mysql or oracle engineers when it comes to getting data it's uh and, and mysql is is super um i like it simplistic like I'm, I'm usually using postgres because it has a lot of extra features just like oracle which also has a lot of these are all databases by the way for people that uh, mysql is pretty simplistic. Uh, one tier lower would be SQLite, which is a database in a file, which is totally code-based. Um, SQLite is also very uh, nice to know of its existence. A lot of offline programs usually have an SQLite database somewhere. So basically, that's the database that they talk to. And MySQL is like easy uh, to learn. The basics aren't like that hard to learn. And you can always update and, and, and work on the um set i'm just wondering what the term was like you have like database normalization which means that you try to keep every bit of data only once so you don't want to copy data over things uh, things like if you have like uh, somebody in a contact address book you have like a table with their name in it and then usually you have like a separate separate table for addresses because you can have multiple addresses for the same person and you don't want to make double entries where you type someone's name twice because they have two addresses things like that but that's like then you get like in the second layer of databases, but it's useful to know when you're talking Notion if you want to simplify your data structures. So if at some point, um, uh, if if you would read up on uh, on uh, like a data duplication in databases, that would help in your Notion bit because you would learn how to avoid having double properties by using yeah. rollups. Then again, the rollups are not as good as uh, uh, databases, so you would still and end up probably having to copy a few things to get the data you want everywhere, which is too bad, but you know, we still love Notion anyway. <laughs> yeah, Notion, don't don't feel left out. We, we still love you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it's, it has been great talking to you again. Um, and is, uh, so you mentioned you're, you're gonna be working, like doing two jobs and then YouTube's gonna be afterwards. Is there a way that people can contact you if they have any specific questions? Who's like Twitter best or email or YouTube? Like where, where would it be? Yeah, um, there, there's plenty of, of ways to contact me, which are on, on my YouTube channel, for example. Um, and you, you can always email me. I believe it's info tools at tech.com. just ends up in my email box. So that's like, I think that's the quickest way to get the initial contact. Uh, I'm always, always always reachable. Sometimes it takes a couple of days, but I always get back on people. If I don't get back, then send another one because then you probably end up in my spam folder, which would be weird because Google usually does its best. But I never just outright archive something unless i really don't like you for some reason which would be amazing because i know very few people that i don't like awesome awesome so it, it has been great talking i've learned a lot of stuff i know i, I assume yeah. other people have as well um oh yeah gail saying thanks for the stream learned a lot of and uh, great fun it's always good fun um yeah we've got we've got a, a, a fair few guests coming on in february i think we've got i think i've got 
nine or ten guests coming on stream mm -hmm. uh, in the next like two or three weeks so lots of conversations like these is going to be good fun lots of learning in february um i hope everyone has a good morning afternoon evening whatever time it is where you are um and i'll see you guys tomorrow on the notion nerds podcast youtube channel yeah <laughs> bye everyone